You guys know we've been going through this series on suffering and evil. And the reason I'm having you fill out these cards that you did is because I know there's still a lot of questions we haven't answered. And I want to get to the place where we can answer them. But we're wading through material slowly, and I think we're getting closer to being able to put it all together. This is a place where we wrestle. That's why we're doing this series, because we want to do it in an honest way. You're allowed to disagree. You're allowed to stop the discussion anytime. You know that's how it works at Exodus. The idea is for us to work towards God's truth with the idea that each of us is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and we all can wrestle against one another, that the Spirit brings out truth in that wrestling. The first couple weeks, what we focused on is really trying to understand the role of free will in suffering, because that seems to be the number one answer that everybody gives. So we spent a couple weeks evaluating where does free will fit into all the suffering and evil that goes on in the world. But most of you noted that there are still some lingering questions, even if you accept that free will is mostly the cause of a lot of the suffering. There's still lingering questions that we have to come back and tie up, like, why even give us the free will? Why even allow it? Isn't God somehow culpable because he knew that we would sin, and yet he still went through with the creation? So those are still some open-ended questions, but we at least looked at where free will works. Last week, we started looking at natural disasters, how suffering happens through natural disasters, and more specifically, what is God's role in natural disasters? And we're going to review that really briefly in a second. Let me show you where we're going We're going to continue tonight evaluating other natural explanations that the Bible offers about what happens and what's God's role in suffering. And we're going to look at some of the results of what you guys looked at last week. We gave you a little survey to find out what you're troubled by and not troubled by. So we're going to do that. We're going to intersperse those together. We're starting to put it all together. We've wrestled through this material enough that starting the next couple weeks, I hope to tie down some of the pieces. But it's not going to be nice and neat. There is no way this subject can come out nice and neat. There wouldn't be so many books. And you know, for this series, we've probably read about close to 10 books now, trying to wrestle with this subject from all different theological perspectives. Here's where we were last week. We put up seven reasons that there might be natural suffering in the world through natural disasters. We were trying to peer behind them, and we, for each of them, looked at a biblical justification for these. So I've just kind of condensed it down so you could remember where we were. Basically, what we said last week is that there are certain laws of nature that God has designed. So the same thing that brings floods and tsunamis also brings fresh water to the earth. It's kind of part of the same process. We said last week the same kind of things that bring petroleum deposits also create earthquakes, those kind of tectonic shifts. So there's a lot of things that we look at that just might be part of the way that God set up the world to provide for us. But we also said that the earth itself is under a curse, that once sin enters the world, maybe even the natural processes no longer operate the way they were supposed to. Somebody in here cited that even the whole creation groans and awaits for it to be liberated from this curse of sin that it's under. We also looked at how our free will works with natural disasters. I mean, we're the people that build in certain places, We're the people that kind of even harm the earth or don't steward it right. There's a lot that our own decisions play in with how we do it. Our example last week was look at Hurricane Katrina. What caused so much devastation and destruction was a man's desire not to build up the levees to the standard they should have been. There's part of our free will wrapped up. We looked at numerous passages last week where God positively says that I'm the one who's sending this natural disaster to punish people. So God has an active role in that type of suffering. Some of you seem a little surprised by that. We looked at the book of Job, number five, that Satan sometimes is behind that kind of thing. We're going to look a little bit more at the book of Job tonight. We also said that God sends natural disasters to turn his people back to him. That kind of thing of like, if you don't turn to me, these are the kinds of things that will happen. 
And then we had some other explanations that we threw up. One of them is this disaster can lead to spiritual renewal, which I thought seemed a little bit strange. But if you look at the stories that missionaries report of places where the earth has been devastated in a way, the kinds of spiritual renewals and the kinds of places that they weren't free to hear the gospel before that suddenly they are. I don't know, you might wrestle with that and think, gosh, that's really a high price to pay to get the gospel in somewhere. But it seems like there's always a high price to pay whenever the gospel advances. So think about those things. That's where we were last week. Let's press forward. Why doesn't God just blunt the impact of suffering? Why does he just prevent the suffering? Here's another question to ask. What about small-scale natural disasters? What about things like illness, disabilities, and death? You know, we struggle with that sometimes, and somebody brought it up last week. So somebody is born, like a newborn baby, born with a heart defect that passes away two, three days later. Or somebody who's born with a disability, and their whole life has to struggle with this disability. Or what we see as death that comes too early. Why? We can understand God maybe sending sort of punishment, but some of this to us and to some of the cards that I've received, you said, seemed senseless. Like, what's the point? Why even allow that to happen? And that needs to be reconciled, too. That's an open question that we haven't responded to. Here's one I do want you to respond to. What is an illness shocking or tragic to us? In other words, what is it that makes these kind of stories make us kind of doubt the very existence of God? So you hear about somebody who's on their way to the prom, for example, and they get hit by a car. They die. We're suddenly struck more about that, for example, than somebody else maybe who's lived a longer life or in a different circumstance. Yeah. I think maybe in our world where so little makes sense to us, we try and sort of make sense of some things, and one thing that's supposed to make sense is that you're supposed to have this period of time where you're alive. And so when that one rule gets disrupted, someone doesn't live the life as long as it's supposed to, that, that doesn't sit well in our minds because it defies sort of our one. So what makes sense to us, that we would live? Yeah, this idea that we're all supposed to die in our beds that you talked about last week, that we have some idea of how we know we're going to die, and it seems wrong when that doesn't happen. Okay, yeah. I think... Um, it's unexpected, and a lot of people view it as more tragic, or as if it's expected, even if not viewed it as tragic, I don't think. I think that's key. So you're saying when it's unexpected, right? It seems more tragic? Okay. Does that assumption make sense, though? I think it's important that we stop and identify this assumption that we have. That really makes us feel that there's a sense of unfairness, that there's something wrong with the world. Those are the kind of things that we are troubled by the most. Yeah. Well, just to go on with that is something unexpected would mean that we're not prepared for it. And if we're not, like, if we're prepared for someone to die, then, you know, we're already dealing with it in the process. Like someone, like your grandpa dying, like you're, you know he's going to die, so you're kind of prepared for when he's died, but yeah. Okay. Well. I think it's sort of this idea of entitlement, too, like, that we feel we deserve X amount of years of enjoyable things. And like if someone's like going to the prom, it's like, oh, like that's a great experience that they've missed out on, that like they deserve. Uh, if someone dies young, well, they deserve to live a full life. Or if someone dies old, like, well, they had their life, and so it doesn't necessarily always seem as shocking as shocking, potentially. Okay. Cheers. I, I agree with that. Um, but I would, and I would add, um, 
we, we see a bunch of people who live to 80, 90, 100, and then we see the people who don't. So just by comparing, so like this person, how, how come they died of natural, they just died in their sleep very peacefully, and the other person didn't. Okay, yeah. I think maybe if you can make a connection with the illness or death or something, like if you're mom and you have a four-year-old daughter, and then you hear about a little girl dying, it's more shocking. Just because you can like relate and you can understand it. That's really astute. It's you can relate and you're scared of it. Go ahead. Um, I think going off of that too, it's like how close to home it is to us. Because there's lots of people that are over dying in Africa. And it's, I mean, it's tragic, but it wouldn't be the same as if you know five people died here that were close to us. Yeah, I've told you in the past that I I read the APU prayer requests come across email, and. Of course, people who are sim- submitting prayer requests, they're like the most awful situations you can imagine, you know. Um, but I read them, and I used to think, oh, this is crazy, I can't read all these. But now I, I read them every day, and they're so tragic. And at the same time, they're so beautiful that they remind you that every day you have is really a gift, right? They, that's what they've been in my life, is I read all the things that are going on. I pray for those people, but I think about how any one of those situations can involve us, any of us that we know. So I think that you've said some very astute things, and I don't want you to miss what you said, because it's very important to this topic. We do have an expectation that we're going to live a certain number of years. Whether we state it or not, we actually do. It is unexpected when we see something, as opposed to when we're watching somebody go through a long illness towards death, or when they're older in age and you think, sure, that makes sense to me that eventually they would pass away. But it's also the fear, it's both. We're scared of what that is. Now, all of those things have been stated well, but think about it. Do we have any right to expect that? I mean, if we believe the God of the Bible and all that he has said to us, don't we understand that, first of all, there's nothing guaranteed in this life. In fact, what we're going to get in this life is probably suffering, probably a lot of difficulty. Why is it that we expect that it's going to be so great? when we live in a fallen world where our own sin contributes to the fallenness of it, when we see that our free will contributes to the suffering of others, or even when we just ignore others, that's contributing to their suffering. Even when we're not doing anything positively evil. Even when we're just not doing what the Lord commands us to do to help others and love others and feed others and clothe others and visit others and advocate on, the, on behalf of others. When we're not even doing those things, the world has more suffering and more difficulty and yet somehow we're shocked when somebody dies in a way that, or in a story that we can relate to and think, that scares me. But it also surprises me. And I want to ask you, why does it surprise us? It really shouldn't surprise us. And I think that's at the core of why we ask this question so much. When we kind of look at the sky and go, why would you allow this? The answer could be to come back and say, why did you expect anything different? From this world. Now, of course, there's lots of verses that talk about the great things that God gives. And by his providence, most of us live fairly peaceful lives, in security, and in some sort of nice place, at least in this country. But if you were born somewhere else, that might be totally different. So I think we need to understand that because we seem to always be looking at this and we tell stories and we like to tell stories about tragic things probably because they're cathartic to tell, but also, I think, because they scare us, and I think we should identify that's probably not right. 
All right, let's look at what you guys said last week. So we asked you some questions, whether you agreed or disagreed last week, and here's what your responses were. Suffering results from God's punishment on unrepentant people. Most of you are like, yeah, yeah, those, get those people, right? Unrepentant people. But remember, that also applies to God's people, because throughout most of the Old Testament, the punishment that was being meted out was on the unrepentant nation of Israel, who seemed not to turn back to him. So it seems like most of you thought that was good. And here are just some examples that we looked at, like the plagues, the captivity of Israel and Judah. I mean, Israel never even comes back. They just disappear. We looked at the verses from Amos, people being cast out of the garden, the curses that are put upon the serpent and Adam and Eve, Sodom and Gomorrah, great examples. Yeah. Um, wouldn't Revelation be also conspicuously missing if you know it hasn't happened yet? It's sort of like the ultimate big punishment on unrepentant people. In a number of ways. There are, the, there are the seals that are broken in the book of Revelation, right, where God is actually breaking seals and unleashing certain things onto the earth. So it kind of has that memory of the plagues again, yes. And, of course, the final judgment, I guess, would be one of those places where, yeah, that would be the big granddaddy of them all, I think, sure. Here's another one. Suffering results from God's discipline in our lives. Notice how it went down a little bit when we were talking about discipline in our lives, right? So some of you are okay about punishing unrepentant people, but just discipline our lives, kind of like less enthusiastic on that one, that you agreed or strongly agreed. Looks like, uh, like 59% of you agreed, 9% strongly agreed, and the rest of you kind of were disagreeing. This comes directly from Scripture. In fact, one of the most famous passages in Scripture about discipline is this one that's in Hebrews. All right, Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I have it up here for context, so I'm not just citing verses out of context. But if you read Hebrews 12, 4 through 11, we come and we see that hardship is discipline and God is treating you as sons. So it goes on to explain that like, what father does not discipline and that this discipline is good for us. Now, somebody asked, what's the difference between punishment and discipline? And I don't know, maybe it's just semantics. Maybe we think punishment is something that you meet out on other people. Discipline is for us. It sounds better than being punished. But probably the only thing I can discern from Scripture that's different is that discipline is intended to make us better. But so is punishment from God's perspective. So, like, this seems to be one of those things where maybe we're just playing around with words, but there is specific language about God disciplining his children to make us better. And because he's treating us as a father would treat a son, that we are disciplined. And it says, of course, no discipline at the time is pleasant. Nobody likes it. But it's for our own good. Brittany. What is that discipline supposed to look like? Is that like consequences of our own actions? Like we get those consequences versus like we do something wrong and God like goes and causes suffering on us? It's actually closer to the second one. Sin has consequences whether God is acting or not. It just does have consequences. But people look at this passage and what Hebrews is trying to say is at times, and the problem is we don't know what times, but at times God will actually allow you to face those consequences maybe in a greater degree or he'll actually bring punishment or discipline upon your life in some way. Yes, even inflicting a difficult time for you so that you can be refined and grow through that. That's what I believe this verse is saying. But then, if he's bringing out some type of situation, like, there's only, like, maybe a psychological type of thing, or maybe a, um, 
like physical type of ailment that I could think of that wouldn't like directly be affecting the other people around you because a lot of our difficult situations seem to be affected by someone else, like whether it's losing a job or whatever. Sure. In fact, one of the things we struggle with the most, and people haven't had too much trouble with it, but I think it's what troubles me the most, is when you see God acting to do some of these things, there are all sorts of uh, supporting actors, if you will, that are on the side that have nothing to do with what's really going on, that are being impacted. Like take the plague in Egypt. If the Passover happens and the firstborn of every Egyptian dies, like they weren't even in Pharaoh's room or throne room like arguing about Moses or the people. They just woke up one day and everybody was dead. And so you would think like that's a deeper troubling issue that we should face sometimes to go, God, I, I don't understand that. What did those people have to do with Pharaoh's decision? Jeremy has brought up that even when God says to the Israelites, because you will not turn back to me, I am going to cause this whole captivity to take place and people to take you away. There might have been like a five-year-old who had nothing to do with all this stuff. He's just playing one day and also the next day, like the whole thing happens. He's either killed or taken as a slave. And we should be a little bit troubled by that because that's, what this, that's why this question is so deep. That's why we can't come up with easy answers because you think, that does trouble me. Most of us, though, have less trouble when we think, yeah, I've done something wrong or I need to grow. I, 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 I. Remember, we're really good about I. And God bringing some discipline on us for that, we go, okay, yeah, I can see that you're making me into a better person. But we are troubled when we go, but what if that affected people around me? Or what if you used people around me to effectuate that discipline? So I think the reason why that might be troubling is that we have this concept of justice and life is supposed to be fair. But maybe when sin came in, fair went out the window. Or maybe what's fair when sin came in is that everybody die, which is what kind of, I mean, if you want to take fair and like a unmitigated fair, like if God just says, so you all want to sin, like then I'll just leave it like that. We'll just have a bad ending to it, right? So the fact that God actually intervenes and tweaks fair by coming up with a redemption plan is even more amazing because he should just say, "Ah, too bad I told you and you did it anyway. What's fair is I just leave you alone to die and end up being judged to a miserable place. So again, that goes back to why do we think it's so tragic? Why do we expect such peace and prosperity in this life? Why do we expect everything to be relatively good? Actually, if we really got down to it, like we said a few weeks ago, what we really like to do is just sin, but just not have the consequence. We want to live in a fallen world without it affecting us. We want to contribute to the fallenness without it affecting us. That's not the way it is. Here's some other places that we see this discipline. If you look at John 15... Jesus is talking about abiding in him. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. We're good with that. You bear no fruit, cut off, right? I'm not really sure what that means. Get a little scared there, but bear no fruit, you get cut off. But notice he says, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. Notice that if you're a branch, Jesus is the true vine. There's only two choices. You'll either be cut off or pruned. Both of them don't sound great. <laughs> Cutting off and he later on says, you're cut off and thrown to the fire. That sounds less great, you know. But pruned is, another word in the Greeks is cleaned. But that means that God is doing something that may not be something you'd like in order to make you better. Notice that he says that if you bear fruit, I'll just let you go, man. You're doing good. Just keep going. If you bear fruit, he's going to prune you to do even better. 
That's part of that discipline sometimes. So maybe sometimes the discipline is for our own good, even when we haven't done like bad things. Maybe sometimes it's just to make us better. And some of us can understand that. I could tell from your results that you guys were like, yeah, I can understand when suffering comes to make me better. Again, it's all about us. Talking about Revelation, which Surly brought up, long passage, Revelation 3, 17 to 22, I put it up there so you could see the context, but Jesus, speaking to the church of Laodicea and counseling them, says these words, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So sometimes discipline comes just like we looked in the vine example to make us better, but we still don't like it. And he is rebuking them, by the way. And he is telling them, like, it's not like he's saying, hey, good job. He's just finished telling them, you know, that the way that you think, you think I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, but you're really wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They're not excited to get this letter from Jesus. But he is reminding them that it's because I love that I rebuke and discipline. Okay, so you guys are okay to some degree on God punishing people? being actively behind suffering to to punish, and being a little bit less okay, being actively behind suffering to discipline. Yeah. When something horrible happens in your life, and you, you don't know how to interpret it, like your child dies, and you say, God, if you're disciplining me, what is this supposed to teach me? It just It's coming back to that whole senseless thing. Right. And the difficulty we have in those circumstances, and I believe that's one of the questions we have to wrestle and wrap up, and it's on the list, The reason it's easier to point these out is because we have a direct revelation from Scripture that talks about it. Like we can say, oh yeah, in this case, or oh yeah, with the Israelites, or oh yeah, with Job, or oh yeah, we know exactly what happened because God has revealed it to us. The problem is when your five-year-old died, as you said, everybody around you is going to probably give you the wrong answer, which sounds like the book of Job. And it's going to do great injury. And most of the time, the thing that I think we're going to have to get comfortable is we might not know. We just might not know. And we might have to be okay with that. All right, one more. Suffering results from a test we face from God. Now, you guys are really falling off on here. Like, most of you disagreed, or like, like less than half of you agreed or strongly agreed that suffering results from a test we face from God. We don't like the idea that God might test. Now, we have to be very careful because the word test has numerous equivalents that we translate. So, let me just give you a couple examples. How about this? We've been doing that on Sunday mornings. Jeremy's been walking us through Soren Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, looking specifically at the test of Abraham. And just to be clear, again, while we think, hey, but it had a happy ending. He tested him and he worked out good. Sure, but if you're a 12-year-old kid being wrapped up and put on a pile of wood, there's probably suffering that happens there when you see your father lift the knife and get ready to sacrifice you. Or the three days of agony that Abraham has to go through walking on this long road to go sacrifice his beloved son. There's suffering there too. That's what Kierkegaard's book really is trying to examine. But putting that aside, it's clear that God does test. Here's another one. We talked about the testing of Peter. Before Peter denies Christ, at the Last Supper, while they're sitting there sharing right after communion, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked me to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back, you'll strengthen your brothers. So Jesus knew that it was going to happen. Jesus knew the temptation he would face. Jesus knew that Satan was going to be involved in it in some way, 
And his response was just, so I've prayed for you. That's a test. How about this one? This is probably the most famous one, the testing of Job. Most of us know the story of the book of Job. But just in case you want the context, Job was a righteous person. Job was a very wealthy person. Job was righteous to the point where he would actually make daily sacrifices on behalf of his children just in case they sinned in some way that wasn't covered by some other sacrifice. He was that intent on trying to protect his relationship with God and even on behalf of his children. And then we see in the background what's really going on. Satan comes to God and says, I would like permission to go after Job. Now, if you really read it in context, what's going on is God seems to be boasting a little bit about Job. Have you considered my servant Job? Kind of like putting him up like, eh, eh, Job? Almost inviting the devil to say, yes, but that's because you've put a hedge of protection around him. If you let me mess with him, there is no way that he's going to stay true to you. And as the reader, we see in the background that God goes, all right, fine. You can do whatever you want to him, but don't touch him. Sounds like God is being really good, right? Because he's saying, do whatever you want, just don't touch him. The do whatever you want, of course, involves all of his possessions being wiped out, all of his children being killed. And in the second test, when Job still doesn't do anything, God allows Satan to inflict sores all over his body as well. So what's the explanation of the testing we have of Job? What's the, what's the theme that we would get? Would you accept that I said the book of Job teaches us that sometimes God and the devil make a bet to just see how far they can take you and see if you're going to break? Yeah. You know what I never thought of until just now? Do you think that uh, God already knew that that's why Satan was there? Because he goes, hey, what are you doing here? And like, he already knew that he was coming to ask about Job, so he started boasting about him. Oh, yeah, like... yeah, I assume that God knew all things, including the fact that Job probably would stay true. But does it get us off the hook on the idea that somewhere behind the scenes, that is a possible explanation for why suffering happens? Either way, it's a little troubling. But Job is troubling in general because people aren't even sure if one person or two people wrote it. It seems like it has different explanations in the book of Job. For example, in the first few chapters of Job, we see this thing going on behind the scenes of God deciding to wager over the life of Job. But later on, when Job is questioning God and God shows up on the scene, he doesn't give an answer. Now, I still feel those are consistent. In fact, God's answer to Job is, who are you to question me? Where were you? Surely you must know all the things that I have done. And he goes into a long list that goes on for two chapters of all the great things that God has done, amazing things, and asking, like, you stand there and tell me how you question me, and surely you must know the answers to these questions. And, of course, Job at the end goes, all right, never mind. Uh, clearly, clearly I shouldn't have spoken. So some people say, well, wait a minute, that's like two different answers in the book of Job. One is there's something going on in the behind the scenes, and there's the other is, no, it's this deal that we've got where you just don't know the reason. I think those are kind of consistent in my view. All right? I kind of believe that God does allow people to go through this kind of testing. At least that's the book of Job says at the beginning. But he doesn't need to give us an answer. He doesn't need to answer us as to why. He doesn't have to. He may, but he doesn't have to. All right. Here's one more. 
God allows suffering to better sympathize with others. This comes from 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, where we are told that because we are troubled, we can learn to comfort others. That being put in places of suffering is for the purpose of helping to comfort others. Now, I have a problem with this one a little bit myself, because even though this is the verse that's cited for it, it doesn't say that God causes the suffering for that purpose. It just says that that's one of the things that comes out of suffering. Let you decide that one. Last one, God allows suffering to keep us humble. From 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, this is the famous verse where Paul is wrestling with a thorn in the flesh, and he concludes that to keep me from becoming conceited, God gave me this thorn in the flesh. If you really understand what he's saying, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassingly great revelations, what Paul is actually saying is, I saw some of the most amazing stuff. I witnessed Jesus personally. Paul says at one point he thinks he's gone to heaven and seen it and come back. So he's actually saying to keep me from being conceited and humble despite all these great things that God has shown me. This is what he kept me suffering through. He prays to God to say, I want this thing removed from me, this thorn in the flesh. And yet the answer he seems to receive is, my grace is sufficient for you. It's okay. Those are all biblical explanations for suffering. Have you noticed one thing that not one of the biblical writers that we've looked at when we've cited verses has said anything about free will? But that's always our number one answer, and yet the Bible seems to have other explanations. Some of Jesus' teachings as well. Think about these. Jesus dealt with Satan as if he's a real person. Jesus dealt with evil as if it was real. Just run a word search in the Gospels on the word evil. Notice how many times Jesus talks just about evil. We looked at the parable of wheat and weeds in our series on Matthew and talked about how God says that he's going to pull up the weeds at the end of time, but that he fully knows that the wheat and the weeds, which represent evil, are growing side by side. He's going to let them both grow until the harvest comes. We see in John 16, 33, I have told you these things, and he's told his disciples all sorts of things about the coming tribulations and trials they're going to face so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Isn't that ironic to put those two things next to each other? I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But also the second part of it, not only will you have trouble, take heart, I have overcome the world. But when? When Jesus talked about now, he was talking about suffering and self-denial now and glory later. You want to follow me? Take up your cross, follow me. Deny mother, brother, sister, deny yourself. All those kinds of things were his call now so that glory would come later. I was thinking about this this week, like, well, when's that ever going to happen? And, you know, we looked at that verse in Second Peter a number of times. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, about don't think that the Lord is slow, as some would think him to be slow, but that he's patient so that none would perish. This week I was reading in the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter that in China alone, 10,000 Christians come to the Lord every day. Every single day. I can't even imagine. I mean, how do they count? I have no idea. Other estimates have put the number as higher to 15,000, and some estimates say that there's about 15,000 Muslims that come to Christ every day. If those numbers are true, and even if they're just half, there's a reason it seems that this justice is being delayed. 
so that more and more people would come. Yes, the world continues through suffering. Yes, there's more difficulty. Yes, there's people dying and all the things that we're facing, but the Lord is also adding to the number of people daily that are joining the kingdom. Go ahead. I don't know, but it's still like a problem. Of like, if we say we have like X number of people, like, well, then God's just eventually saving more of them? That makes sense. But people are being created that... Like saying, well, now there's more people that are Christians. Well, there's more people that are not Christians that never existed ever in the world. Like, and so, like, I, I don't know. Like, it still has that problem of that God's greater purpose would be saying, well, that's fine. Like, those people are not my concern to some degree. I don't, I don't know, like, how that gets resolved. I don't think it does. Except that you might say, I think those people definitely had the chance, but I don't even know all the time that I could say that with a straight face. Yes. Last comment. To respond to still, um, I think that maybe Christianity is spreading like to places where they've never heard the gospel, and eventually it's gonna spread, you know, everywhere. And the percentage of the people born who will not be Christians do have a chance to be Christianity because if the gospel has been spreading, it doesn't mean that. Christianity shifts, it's like it's growing, and then the areas that already is Christian, like, would, you know, either, you know, be Christian people kind of, you know, keep Christianity up or, you know, dissipates, doesn't become Christian, that would, might, you know, you could blame it on people not keeping responsible to Christianity. Well, I think part of the question will be answered by what degree you believe people have choice in accepting Christ or not. And there's all sorts of views on that. But if you believe that they have a choice, then that contributes to the fact that many people will not come to Christ. And I believe that generationally. Like if you decide that your kids will never hear about Jesus, that's going to have a generational effect that will outlive you and probably go multiple generations down the road. That's a choice that somebody made in their free will that will affect maybe hundreds of people in their family through generations. But again, it depends on if you believe that they had a choice or God irresistibly calls them or where you are on that spectrum. I'm not going to go there, but that's maybe part of the question. Let me wrap it up this way. There are some things we know. You can look at the Bible and say, there's some things we know on the beginning happened, there's some things we know in the end. We also know that Jesus, from the beginning, was destined for the cross. This wasn't like a rescue plan. This wasn't plan B. This wasn't something that caught God by surprise. What we have to do is fill in what's below that line. In other words, over the next couple of weeks, we have to kind of solve this a little bit. Maybe not fully, but we have to at least come up with what we do believe and what we still have questions on. And that's kind of where we're going. There are some things that are pretty clear, but here's the question I want you to think about as you leave your night. Do you believe in a God who for every single thing in the world, he either caused it or allowed it? Do you believe in that God? Do you believe in a God who's sovereign to the point that everything that happens, he either caused or allowed? Because a lot of what you're going to come out with about suffering depends on how you would answer the question of God's sovereignty. If you think there are some things that are beyond his control or beyond his knowledge, you might be in a different place. But I want you to come back next week having thought through that. Do you believe in a God who every single thing that happens, he either caused or allowed? 
And that might bring us closer to understanding some of the questions that are still lingering out there. So thank you for putting up with me tonight when I'm not feeling 100%. I know this was tough material, and I don't feel like I presented it so great um, tonight. So let's pray and close up. Lord, there's so much about you that we don't know. We can scour all of the words that you've given us in Scripture, and we can scarcely fit it into our head to understand the God who can reconcile all these things. Lord, in our heart, we know that we don't deserve anything but death. That's what is our lot. And yet, Lord, it blows my mind to think that even before creation, you had already destined your son to redeem all of creation. That somehow it's within your great plan to allow all this to unfold so that those who are called by you, those who are in this room right now, those thousands who are coming to you every day, that we would spend eternity with you. And Lord, even then, I don't know if we're going to understand how it all played out. Maybe that's when we get to see how you orchestrated every single event in history in the most amazing way. Maybe that's why we're going to praise you so much more when we see with wonder what you were able to accomplish. But Lord, we wrestle with these things in here, in our finite minds, in our finite world, in our fallen world, because we know that there's people out there who trip up over these issues every day. Let us not be the people who harm other people with our careless words. Let us be those people who can point to you and wrestle with people and show them the great God that we serve. We pray this in your name. Amen.